Afternoon, you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX, 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. This is The Big Tent, and I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler, who has some exciting news. Uh, Yes, uh, I do have some exciting news. So this week, I, I found out that, I guess, officially unofficially, whatever, uh, that the university is going to give me tenure, which is kind of a, a big step. I guess it's something I've been working on for like half a decade now. It's kind of the uh, the big prize that we're all gunning for. So it's uh, it was kind of anticlimactic, but it's good news. My wife is very excited. Congrats. We're excited to keep you around a little bit longer. <laughs> um, we're also excited today because we have a special guest, Steve Udick, who's my colleague in political science at Boise State University. So welcome, Steve. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're just going to start off. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit kind of about yourself, your research area? Yeah. So I started here at Boise State back in 2015, which feels like it was yesterday, but <laughs> it was really almost four years ago. Um, and I do research on political psychology, political communication pretty broadly. Um, I got my PhD from Vanderbilt University, and I've been going with that ever since here, going strong. Fantastic. Well, I think you have some research that really speaks well to kind of current events, which we're going to focus on a little bit today. Um, a lot of your research focuses on p- political rhetoric, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I, I do. I do a lot of work on language and politics and rhetoric. And why should we care about the rhetoric used in politics? Well, when people get their information about politics, they hear it from someone or they read it somewhere. And when they get that information, they're usually not just reading off the boring AP Newswire. They're usually getting that in the context of stories or they're listening to it on the radio or on TV or hearing about it from their friends or on social media. And the words we use to describe those stories often have pretty big impacts on people's political attitudes. That's really interesting. Um, so what are some particular kind of rhetoric tools or strategies that do impact what we think about politics? Yeah, so one I focus on is uh, dehumanization. I also focus generally on kind of emotional language and, and things like that in politics. Um, those are kind of the big areas that I focus on. Interesting. Um, I, Luke and I don't know much about this area. <laughs> um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about what dehumanization is? Yeah, dehumanization is uh, kind of a big topic in, it was been a big topic in psychology for quite a few years, maybe the last 15 years or so. And what that is, is when we use language to talk about human beings, but we use metaphors that refer to them as something other than human. These are things like animals, Um, oftentimes vermin and disease, uh, sometimes non-living organisms, things like calling someone a beast or something like that. Um, You can refer to people as machines almost in a mechanistic way and things like referring to them as natural disasters as well. So pretty much any time you talk about human beings using metaphors and language that relate to non-human entities is what we would consider to be dehumanization. Interesting. Why might this be concerning? This is something we hear a lot. I mean, expect, people talk about members of the other party often mm-hmm. as in kind of these terms, right? Um, so why why is it 
concerning. So there's a big thing that says the idea is that human beings have three kind of unique things, not unique things about them, but three things that are people see as parts of being human. And they're thought of as behavior, very simple thing that you can actually take actions. Also, um, cognition, that you can think about what you're doing, and emotions or affect, that you feel a certain way. And by taking away these human traits, you're often able, you're never able to deny behavior, right? When you confer to people as animals or even as diseases or microorganisms like that, people still have their behaviors. But what they lose are these things like cognition and emotions, things that people refer to as uniquely human traits that separate human beings from other living things. And so from a policy perspective, right, I guess this is about creating policy images and ideas around these groups of people that somehow they're less deserving or, or less part of this or deserve less rights or less part of our community. Is that really what we're getting at? That's exactly what it gets at. Because when you dehumanize people, it makes people think, these people are different from me. They're some kind of other. They're some kind of other group. And I a huge line of research in psychology and political science says when you think of people as a member of your own group in some way, you like them more, you treat them better. When you think of them as another a member of another group, you like them less and you treat them worse. And of course, like it's easier for us to take rights away or take benefits away from groups that we see from the outside. I mean, when you think of historically, a lot of examples of this, Nazi Germany, the the South during, uh, I guess, the pre-civil rights movement, where we said those people are different from us. And so it's all right to treat them as not humans. Yeah, that's a big thing. And I'm glad you brought up Nazi Germany, because that's where some of the biggest examples of this is how they treated the Jewish people during the Holocaust and during World War Two when you think of like propaganda posters from Nazi Germany, it's referring to Jewish people as rats or cockroaches or something like that. So it can be even worse as it can actually go from just leading to negative policies and exclusionary policies to things like genocide. And dehumanization is a key element of most genocides that we've seen recently. So why, and at the beginning of this, you said this has become more popular in the last 15 years or so. So why is it becoming more popular if it's something that's kind of been around for a long time? I think researchers have had a sense of that it's bad, and they haven't had a good sense of how it works and what it's doing. And this is where we're getting those explanations that say, well, if we here's what here are the traits we deny people that are dehumanized that are unique to humans and how people can treat them differently. So it's more getting at those reasons why it's happening other than people saw it. And you see, if you look at World War II propaganda posters, they're terrible and offensive with this stuff. Um, but people saw it and they thought this is probably bad. But now we're getting more into explaining why it's bad and what it does to people. Interesting. So how do you research that? How do you get at that, the effects of dehumanization language? Yeah, this is really hard when you're researching psychological things and language in particular, because if you just ask people, are you exposed to dehumanizing language? They would say, I have no idea what you're talking about, <laughs> and I don't remember every type of language I've heard. So I do it with something called an experiment. Um, and much like in medical fields and other things where people might be familiar with experiments, it involves randomly assigning people to receive certain information. So what I do is I give people text um, when I study this, one with kind of negative language that's not dehumanizing, and then other people get text that is negative and dehumanizing. This is to account for the fact that dehumanizing language is by its nature negative. Can you give us examples of negative language that's not dehumanizing and then that that is so we kind of have a better sense of what you're talking about? 
Yeah, so if you call someone you don't like a jerk, that's not dehumanizing because that's inherently someone who's thought of as a person. So I can call people jerks, no problem. You're no. allowed to call people jerks. <laughs> it's not as bad. You do have if... tenure now, so. <laughs> yes, I can say whatever I want to. Well, not officially till August, so. <laughs> <laughs> but if you call that same person a rat, another thing that people use to kind of really denigrate someone they don't like, that actually is more powerful than just calling them, you know, you think of rat often comes with like snitch, right? In terms of people, um, in terms of like criminal type things. Calling them a snitch is like a snitch is a person though, but a rat is an animal. And that is actually even harsher language and it does different things than just saying mean things about them. And so when you're running these experiments, um, kind of what's your population that's usually incorporated in these studies? So I typically, I've used a bunch of different groups of people. Um, So my idea and the idea of others who work on this is this works on everyone. Okay. Um, And it's not just people who are already opposed to a certain group that it works on. So I've done it with student populations like any good psychology person. Um, We just ask people who are in our classes to do it. I've done it with uh, online samples as well, and those samples are often sometimes representative of the U.S. population, other times just uh, people who I can do it because of uh, you know, they're a little cheaper than getting ones that are truly representative. Interesting. Well, we're going to continue talking about dehumanization and some of the current um, kind of policy debates where we're seeing it when we come back from this uh, short break. So please come back and join us. Or the radio, or the hi-fi, or just a tingling feeling you get every time we come near. KRBX. All right, welcome back to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. I'm your host, Jackie Kettler, here with my co-host, Luke Fowler, and our special guest, Steve Udick, all of us at the School of Public Service at Boise State University. So we are talking about some of your research, Steve, on dehumanization. Um, you've been researching this for a while, but is there any particular policy debates or current events where you're seeing this language used a lot um, in recent years? Yeah, and I think everyone out there can kind of guess one person in one area where it's being used, and it's Donald Trump's rhetoric on immigration. Um, people might remember about about a year ago, he was referring to the MS-13 gang in a private meeting, and he said, these people, they're, these aren't people, they're animals. It's a very over-the-top thing. Well, that doesn't even sound like a hint of dehumanization. Like, that's very explicit. It was incredibly explicit, and he's been more subtle about it lately. He tweeted out on December 31st, which I remember the date because what a way to spend your New Year's Eve, uh, he tweeted out that the southern border uh, was an open wound, which is a super common dehumanizing term because it's implication that the United States is like kind of personified as a living human thing and you have an open wound. And when we think about open wounds, we think about we need to close them up and protect them to protect from infection. So it's an implication that the infection from the open wound on the border is the immigrants who are crossing it. Huh. Interesting. I mean, and these are things that are, you. I mean, kind of analogies used commonly. And yet I think we don't necessarily think about the, the consequences of that language. 
Yeah, I've talked to people before, especially uh, people in the media, when they hear me talking about dehumanization, they say, so I shouldn't say there's a flood of immigrants coming in. And I'm like, no, that actually is really negative connotations when you when you say these things and make them seem less than human. And I think people don't even realize they're doing it because so many kind of common vernacular sayings in, in in the English language are by their nature kind of dehumanizing. So some of us may engage in this language accidentally. Um, on your kind of following of the of Donald Trump, is it do you think it's accidental there? Are these very purposeful kind of language uh, usage? Yeah, I, I don't think it's accidental because of how often he uses it. And my sense is he has, you know, I don't even know. You know I, I have no reason to believe I'm not that prideful that he actually knows my research and knows it's effective. But um, he probably has a sense that using this language is effective. He probably has advisors. A lot of operatives within both political parties are very focused on language and words that politicians use when they're describing certain things. And since this rhetoric is so common with how Trump talks about immigration, I have to imagine he knows what he's doing and he thinks it's effective. And when you say effective, like what effective in what way, like getting people like excited or like ready to go vote or other types of effectiveness? So part of it's about policy prescriptions and what people will support. So if it's effective, if dehumanizing rhetoric is effective, it will get people to want more restrictive policies towards immigrants. This is part of the emotional um, response to it is when you dehumanize people, it actually makes people feel more disgusted towards them. Um, especially when you do it as a disease. This is a classic reaction of why are things that might actually cause diseases in us so disgusting to us? Well, it's an evolutionary reaction where people say, it gets people to say, I'm going to avoid this thing. So if you do that with immigrants, it makes you want to exclude them and avoid them because dehumanization makes them feel disgusted by it. Well, and I'll throw out there, I mean, the the immigration debates in the U.S. uh, definitely predate the last 10 or 15 years, right? They go back hundreds of years. I mean, back to the uh, Italian and Irish immigrants, right? And with the the conservative argument on all of that has always been to look at these new immigrants as not part of the U.S. community, right? As being separate, as not being a part of that. And so I, I think the what you're talking about with dehumanization really hits on it because you really go, they're animals and they're not part of our society. And because they're not part of the society, well, then we'll just kick them out. We'll build walls. We'll deprive them of rights. They don't deserve all these things. But the flip side of that is if you see them as people, then all of a sudden they become part of the community and we can't treat them the same way. And so uh, I think there's a lot of criticisms that we can throw on Donald Trump, but you got to say, I mean, he uses rhetoric and language in a very effective way to hit on the things that he wants. Because, I mean, he sets up the logic and allows people to kind of draw their own inferences about what that means. And in immigration is a really great case study on this. Now I'll go back to, I don't know if he does this purposely or if it just kind of happens for him, but he is definitely a good example of this. Yeah, I think Trump is definitely, you know, no matter what you think of him, he's someone who uses rhetoric and language to his advantage. And he actually is really, really good at getting people to believe to support his policies through the way he talks about them. And it's very, you know, I have to imagine there's some level of strategy there. And maybe part of it is his background as a business person. And he's always been trying to convince people. Um, so it definitely makes a lot of sense. And the debate about immigration actually this is what got me started researching this was looking at how people treated irish and chinese immigrants way back at the turn of the century and 
people had found they use the same rhetoric, same dehumanizing rhetoric against them as is being used against Mexican immigrants today. Well, and again, uh, I think if you look at some of Trump's policy positions, I mean, it might be kind of difficult to convince people that like building a wall is a good idea. But if you convince people first that uh, like Latino or Latinos, people from South America are not humans that they're not part of our community then the building the wall thing actually isn't a logical leap like it makes sense if you first combine to that logical construct and i mean i think he gets a lot of people to do that by referring to and using that language and so again um he may be an evil genius in certain ways (laughs) (laughs) um and i think we see this in some other air policy areas as well like thinking about people who rely on government services um and often being called leeches or things you know um and trying to kind of set up where they don't maybe deserve the benefits or that we shouldn't provide it. So I think it's the kind of, it's a, something that you may not think about, but then once you start to look for it, you kind of see it everywhere. Yeah, that's what I've noticed since I started doing this. Um, when I first started doing it, people would ask me, they're like, well, what, what, do people really use this? Like, this seems so extreme. And then when you mention some examples of it to people, like the leeches example is perfect. It's how what what you do with people who receive government benefits that's what people say about them and when you bring it up that way people start to say oh now i see it all over the place because it's such a common thing people do yeah are there i mean besides immigration which of course is like really kind of an obvious area where this is used a lot right now are there other policy debates going on where you kind of pick up on it happening pretty regularly yeah, so I've actually started looking at um, what came from the anthem protests in the NFL. A lot of language. It's one interesting thing is there's one area where you see dehumanization that is often positive, and it's towards athletes. Huh? Um, is that they're called beasts or monsters when it means they're really, really good at what they do. There's also some work that says things like focusing on their athleticism versus intelligence is another way to dehumanize them because animals can kind of do those athletic things, but the intelligence is the uniquely human thing. So I've looked at that and I've found that dehumanization works to get people to be less supportive of those anthem protests. And it only works when it's targeted against African-American athletes. If you target a white athlete, you actually don't see any of those effects. Well, it sounds like you kind of through these different policy areas that there sounds like a pretty big racial element to the dehumanization language or like the use of dehumanizing language. And and part of that is it's really hard to dehumanize someone who's a member of your group and who's like you. Because what does that imply about yourself? If you're trying to dehumanize someone with a shared racial or ethnic identity, it becomes really hard for people to latch on to that because you say, if that person's not human, then what am I? But when it's someone who's the other and is very different from you, you then can see those things start to kind of take hold. Yeah, and bringing it back to partisanship as well. Mm -hmm. We we use this language, we use these in-group, out-group identities um, to really kind of, and how we engage or don't engage with the other side. Yeah, exactly. And I know some scholars are actually working on these partisan metaphors of you can dehumanize Republicans to Democrats. Yeah, interesting. Well, we're going to take a break. Um, We're going to talk about some recent political events, including uh, the Amazon New York situation when we return. Uh, So please come back here on KRBX 89.9 FM. Welcome back to the Big Ten. I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-host, Jackie Kettler, and our colleague from the School of Public Service at Boise State, Steve Udick. So uh, 
we've been talking about dehumanizing language and policy, but we're going to take a, a little uh, different uh turn here in this last segment and so i want to talk about one of the the big news stories that have come up uh this week and last uh and it's the amazon headquarters in new york and so for our longtime listeners and i know so many of you sit around and wait for thursday every <laughs> week to listen to what we're talking about we talked about like the big bidding process and how this was very long and drawn out a very public choice in the where the Amazon headquarters 2.0 was going to be. And the two winners were Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C., and New York. Um, and so New York put out a big pitch. Um, and so the promise was to bring twenty five something like 25,000 jobs, and it's going to bring a $3 billion tax revenue into the city. Well, Amazon has decided that they're not going to do that anymore, um, that they are going to concentrate on their uh, facility in northern uh, Virginia, but they're dropping what they're going to do in New York. And this has come from pushback by a lot of progressive Democrats. Um, now, I mind you that the leaders of both New York uh, City and New York State were also Democrats, but they're more of the traditional flavor of Democrats. Um, and so a lot of this is being led by Al uh, AOC Alexandra Ocoso-Cortez. I'm sure I just mispronounced mm -hmm. that, but that's okay. Uh, so she was really pushing back about this, and her argument against all this was that this is favoring, this is more corporate welfare. It's favoring Amazon. It's going to drive up prices. It's going to drive people out of their neighborhood. Um, and so there's economic consequences outside of the job creation and outside of the tax revenue. And so this has been a pretty interesting uh, debate back and forth as both sides have kind of thrown barbs at each other. And there's a lot of blaming. There's a billboard that went up to, in New York Times today that basically says we just lost jobs and money because of you. Thanks, AOC. Um, she has tweeted about it, called it whack, which I find hilarious that people still use the word whack. Uh, this, but she <laughs> called it she called it whack in her tweet um, and basically pushing back on this and saying, look, these these criticisms aren't telling you the entire story. So my question for uh, Steve as our guest today: What do you, what is your opinion on the kind of this? Have you been following this story? Like, what where do you where do you stand on all this? I have been, and it's a loaded position to where do I stand on this? But it's a it's a complicated situation uh, because this is a situation where think about these economic development things where the proponents of it love to talk about all the tax revenue that could come in. And that tax revenue will come in once the tax breaks offered to get the place expire, and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes difficult. And there's a ton of problems in there um, in terms of, you know, I think the point of like this gets to the concepts of gentrification, right? Where where the poorer areas become wealthier areas by bringing in a giant Amazon headquarters with a bunch of well-paying people into a traditionally poor area, and everything gets more expensive there because people pay for it. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. I think attributing all Amazon leaving New York to AOC <laughs> is giving a lot of credit to someone who's been a member of Congress for two months. Which seems to be happening a lot with her, which is, is interesting why she particularly strikes the interest or attention or blame for a lot of these things. It's pretty interesting to watch. Well, I think she's really uh, more or less become the symbol of the new wave of Democrats, right? And I think the old wave of Democrats is really trying to push that back. Um, as one of our colleagues said last week, that the, the traditional Democrats really wanted new innovation and all these ideas. They just don't like any of the ones that have been popping up. <laughs> so they really have to fight back against them. Otherwise, they risk, well, losing their positions, right? Because they're going to be seen as not with it anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of 
bizarre to see. But I think, Steve, you brought up some good points about, you know, whether or not the benefits ever actually come through for like a, a company, a big facility like that moving in. Clearly, like jobs would be would be created. Um, but are they good jobs? Are they jobs that, you know, for long term benefit? Additionally, we see these types of, like, thinking about stadiums um, that often end up cities having to continue to provide a lot of benefits in order to keep them there. And so there are, like, some really interesting issues that get kind of incorporated in all of these discussions. Well, I think the uh, the debate on both sides is very interesting. Um, I was actually kind of surprised that AOC was willing to take up this fight because her argument isn't wrong and it's a valid point but it's very complex um and complex ideas and complex economic situations are very difficult to communicate rhetorically to people um particularly through tweets as she Mm -hmm. prefers to do so uh you know i wonder how bad this is going to end up impacting her down the line because i think people can latch on to twenty-five thousand jobs i think it's much more difficult for them to understand how those jobs are eventually going to impact the economy of the entire city and how that switches so basically to say like should did she pick too complex of an issue to dig her heels into? Is it going to be easy enough for her to con- uh, communicate? If you understand my question, I'm not. I guess I, I'm not sure. Is would it be in her district? I think it's near her district. Like it's, I, I guess the building site is my understanding is not in her district, okay. but the ideas of where people might live would be in her district. And I imagine that. You know, a facility the size is going to have effects across a, a big part of the city. I mean, New York's big, but this is still going to be felt in a lot of different ways. Sure, sure. Yeah, it is interesting. Could this af- affect her electorally? I mean, you know, once incumbents get in, they're usually pretty safe, except for, you know, I mean, it may be a p- primary challenger could mm-hmm. be pretty serious for her. Um, but it's I, electorally, maybe she wouldn't have a large impact from this, especially with other things going on, like the news cycle changes so fast. <laughs> like, you know, but at least in the broader public, we probably won't even remember this um, in, a, in a year. Yeah. And if the people in her district are people who say, I don't I wouldn't work at Amazon. I wouldn't be one of the people who really benefits from this. What would happen is they'd move into my neighborhood and my rent would go up. And if that happens, it might hurt her in New York City or New York State as a whole, but maybe not in her district. Well, so Steve, uh, to circle back to your work on rhetoric, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting uh, having this conversation because what she talks about a lot is Amazon, right? This faceless corporation, mm-hmm. right? So to a certain extent, does that does that help make the case when it's you know us versus that big corporation over there, um, where the other side is talking about jobs and how it's going to benefit individuals? Do you kind of follow um, how she might be using some? Of the, well, I don't guess you can dehumanize a corporation, <laughs> but at least uh, emphasizing the fact that they're not humans and they're just this big nameless, faceless entity. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of what got her elected and what had her. Be- one of those establishment Democrats uh, who had been long serving in the House is talking about how corporations don't care about people and they don't do anything to help the average person. And that's been her line and going against Amazon, which is often considered, you know, maybe along with Walmart, one of those big, scary monoliths of a corporation might actually be effective among people who support her. 
Yeah, I mean, for like that kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party, I think, you know, the ri- the strength of these large corporations is concerning. Um, they don't pay a lot of, you know, like there's con- questions about taxes, those types of things. And so, yeah, I mean, in the long run for her, it could be a, a, a beneficial thing to kind of focus on. Yeah, and I think the uh, concept of too big to fail is still fresh in a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds, particularly uh, among our age group that mm-hmm. was finishing college and looking for jobs around the time that we had this kind of devastating stating situation in American history go on. So I think that also kind of worries a lot of people in our age group. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. We were it's so ex- interesting to hear about your research, and we'll have to have you on in the future for more policy discussions. Um, congrats, Luke, again on tenure. Thanks. Um, we're going to move on to some music. Um, the Polyrhythmics, um, who are playing March seventh at Neuralux. Thanks for joining us.